I have a question for you. Where do you need to be to get right with God? What do you need to do? Where do you need to be? How can you position yourself such that you can get right with the creator of the universe? There are many possible answers to that question. There's the pull yourself up by your bootstraps answer. This is the work hard, be a good person, do unto others as you would have them do to you mentality. Uh, There's the go to church answer. Attach yourself to a church, agree with the major beliefs of that church, get baptized, take the Lord's Supper. There's the social justice answer. This is the oppose oppressors, fight injustice, advocate for a righteous cause answer. There's the I need to be struck by lightning approach. And this is particularly true of kids who are raised in the church. You rightly know that you've got to make faith in Christ your own, but unsure of how that really works, you either knowingly or unknowingly, slip into thinking that you've got to have some particular emotionally undone experience before you can claim Christ. There's the pray the prayer answer. The thought goes, if you genuinely pray the sinner's prayer that you're a sinner, that Christ is the Savior and you believe in Him, then that's it. You're saved. But what's right? This is a very live question. For some of you youth, for some of you adults. You know many things about the Bible. You are positive, in fact, towards the things of the Bible and the gospel, but for various reasons, you are not in Christ. So what can you do for the good of your soul this morning? Here's where you need to get. Here's what I want to persuade you of this morning. At the end of the day, you need to get to a very simple but true place where you confess that God is good and you are not. And then the question becomes, will you own that reality? Will you receive God's grace in Christ and follow him, or will you go your own way? This is what we're going to see in our text this morning. And what we'll see is that this is actually not just a place that you come to once in order to be saved. This is a place that those who are in Christ are at all the time. This is a place where we live as those who are saved. So, believer, this has just as much to do with you as it does the non-believer. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. That's before you get to the Proverbs and before you get to the Psalms. If you get to all of the... The prophets, 
then you've gone a hair too far. Just go back to the left. Nehemiah chapter 9. And if you remember, I want to just bring you up to speed on a bit of context. Last week, Israel read the word of God a lot. They gathered on the first day of the seventh month. They listened to the word read and explained for how long? Anybody remember? Six hours. Six hours. They gathered on the second month of the second day of that month to do the same thing again. And until that time, you've got to remember, they hadn't had a lot of input from the Bible. So captivity in Babylon wasn't good for their biblical literacy. And then once they returned, they had been busy about the work of rebuilding. So they just weren't very biblically literate. They're honestly just like a lot of us in New England. If we weren't raised in the church, we don't know a lot. Now when they began to read the Word of God, the Word of God began to expose their hearts and they began to weep over their sin. However, leaders last week told them, basically, guys, today isn't the day for weeping. There is going to come a time for weeping, but today's not the day. Today's the day to rejoice. But, friends, as we come to today's text, today is the day to mourn. So in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, we've come to the time to mourn. Verses 1 through 5 set up the text for us. Let me just read 1 through 5 with you. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up. And bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. This is a sober gathering, isn't it? It's the 24th day of the month. They've come together with fasting. That means they're abstaining from food. They've got sackcloth on, and that's a garment that symbolizes sorrow or sadness or shame. They separate themselves from foreigners, that is, unbelieving foreigners. So this isn't Israel being stuck up or snobbish. This is the people of God coming together as believers in God to do what? Verse 3, to confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. This is a sober gathering. The word is central to this gathering. They stood in their place and they read from the book of the law for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of a day, they confess their sins. By the way, these verses 1 through 5, they serve as a a summary to this whole section. So this is summarizing what we're going to see today. And then the details become clearer and clearer as we move forward. 
So, we know they've come together to read, they've come together to confess their sins, and they've come together to bless their God. Notice what the Levites say in verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. We read that this morning for our call to worship. It's a pretty solid call to worship, wouldn't you say? I think the guy who picked it picked a good one. Um, Well, the Levites are calling the people to worship. Bless God, they say. Bless Him for who He is. Bless Him for what He's done. Bless Him because He's exalted. Bless Him because He's from everlasting to everlasting. That's what they say. Bless God. And what Israel does next is exactly that. She blesses God by making a good confession. Now, when we say the word confession, I think you probably think about confessing something that you've done. That's probably how you think of the word confession. I'm going to confess something. That's actually not how I'm using the word here. I'm using it how we sometimes use it in the life of our church. So sometimes on Sunday mornings, what do we have? We have a corporate confession of faith. We confess truths we believe as a body of believers. That's what Israel's about to do. She's about to confess what she believes and what she believes here. Oh, praise God, it's good. It's good. Because she's finally at a place where she sees God rightly. And herself rightly. So let's just look at this confession. I want you to pick up in verse 6. Verse 6, Nehemiah chapter 9. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven the heaven of heavens. With all their host, the earth that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. You know, at some point and in some way, everybody asks big questions, right? So where did we come from? Where did the universe come from? Did anything exist before the universe existed? Where did life come from? Those are questions asked in every age of human history. In our age, we say the Big Bang. In their age, creation myths filled with gods and goddesses were the explanation of the day. But... In every age, both ours and then, the true answer is just right here in verse 6. God is the creator. God made the universe. God made the heavens. God made the seas. God made life. God preserves life. God is to be worshipped. This confession starts at the very beginning. A very good place to start. It starts at the beginning of the world with God as creator. And it starts at the beginning of Israel. Look at verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. You made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for your righteous. God is not just the creator. God is covenant maker. He called Abram in Genesis 12. He called him to himself. He 
commanded him to walk before him. He entered into covenant with him. He promised his offspring. Who's his offspring? Israel, the goodly land of Canaan. And he has kept his promise. Why has he kept his promise? Because he's righteous. Because he does what he says he will do. And this is the beginning of a theme you're going to see teased out as we walk through this text. And that theme is that God is good. You know that old saying, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good? We're going to see that theme in this text. God's goodness is on like 8K high-def display. And his goodness, brothers and sisters, is in contrast, just to put it bluntly, to Israel's badness. God's goodness is in contrast to Israel's badness. This confession is actually a study in contrasts. And as we read it, I just want you to note, hey, like put it in buckets. Like what is this saying about God? And what is this saying about Israel? You're going to see it's a study in contrasts. And so let's look at this next section, beginning in verse 9 and running through 25. And by the way, this confession is structured around all the major events in Israel's history. So we've got creation. That's a pretty big event. We've got the call of Abraham. That's really the beginning of Israel. And now we move on to the next major event in the life of Israel, which is uh, the, the Exodus. Look at verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them. So they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night to light them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them the bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Now pause. God is the actor in all of this, okay? So if you're just reading through this, this is highlighting all that God has done. Israel's really done nothing so far, except she's the the passive recipient of God's goodness. But now she comes into the picture. And I want you to notice how she comes into the picture. It's not a flattering Instagram post. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously. And stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. This is Numbers 13. If you were with us in our series in the Torah. Numbers 13. They wouldn't take the land. The whole reason why God saved them was to bring them into the land. And at Numbers 13, at this critical juncture in their life, they refused to follow him they want to quit the whole thing but you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. Now this is Exodus 32. Israel literally constructed a physical idol and ascribed to it deity. Yet, yet, verse 19, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for your thirst, for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. This is incredible. Incredible forgiveness. He did not wipe them out. Incredible provision. Their clothes did not wear out. And then look what happens as the time draws near to enter Canaan in verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. This is at the end of Numbers. God gives them victories to to boost their confidence as they are going to go in and take the land. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. That's one of the promises God made to Abraham, and now he's made good on that promise. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And you, God, gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, that would be wells of water, vineyards, olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Notice again the emphasis is on God. So, so God gave them kingdoms. God multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. God brought them into the land. God subdued before them the inhabitants of the land. God gave, God gave, God gave. And so they took possession of houses full of good things and vineyards and olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. The picture here is Eden-like. God has given them a place that is as sweet and is as wonderful as the very Garden of Eden itself. Nevertheless, and here comes the contrast again. They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them over to the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. 
And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the land of their in- to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, and they would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. This is the history of Israel from the time of the judges, which is immediately after they'd taken the land, uh, all the way up until the exile. That's really the, the picture of redemptive history that's in view here. And, and put simply, this is how it went down. It went down in cycles. Rebellion. God gives them up to enemies. They cry out. God saves. Rebellion. God gives them up to enemies. They cry out. God saves. And not just twice. Many times you delivered them according to your mercies, 28. Many times God warned them to turn back from his law. Yet many times they acted presumptuously, refused to obey, turned a stubborn shoulder. Even so, the text says, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Sheesh! Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Exile. What's the picture? The picture is a long-suffering God and an insufferable people. The picture is of a long-suffering God and an impossible people. I confess, brothers and sisters, I confess non-Christian friends, I get confused when people say that the God of, an Old Test- of the Old Testament is an angry God. What Old Testament are you reading? This is a father who acts toward his adult daughter in ways that most parents today would look at and say, when are you going to be done with your grown child who obviously wants nothing to do with you? All she does is use you. All she does is manipulate you. All she does is call you when she doesn't have anybody left to call. She does not love you. When are you going to be done And yet God does not make an end of them. Nevertheless, verse 31, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are gracious and a merciful God. Oh my goodness. This is God. Even though he would be well within his rights by any reasonable person's judgment to forever cut off and be done with his people, he doesn't. Because he is gracious and merciful. 
Well, this is quite a confession of faith, right? But the best is actually yet to come. Because we're going to get to see how Israel interprets and applies these things to herself. It's one thing to look and explain your past. It's another to own up to why it is what it is. So look at verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, upon our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the times of the king of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have acted faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings and our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments or your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in a large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in a land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. (laughs) And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on a sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So just full stop, do you know what this is? This is Israel finally owning what she has needed to own for years. This is Israel finally seeing her reality as it really is and not her own distorted version of it. Just follow me for just a second. This is so important. Verse 32, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria. That's the exile up until this day. So this is a prayer for the Lord to take notice of them. Okay, that's what it is. Lord, take notice of our suffering. Lord, bend your ear. Lord, look down from heaven and see. See that we are slaves, they say. And they are slaves. Even now, they're slaves. Even now that they're back in the land, they're still under the rule of Assyria. If they didn't pay him tribute money, they were toast. That's verse 36. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you set over us. But the question we've got to ask, the question they've got to ask is, is why? Why the hardship of the exile? Why the hardship beyond the exile? Why all the trouble? Because of her sin. Because of her sin. And praise God. That's not just our conclusion. 
looking from the outside, observing the text, that's actually her conclusion. Look at verse 33. This is the crux of it all. As she looks at her past, as she looks at her present, here's what she boils it down to. These are precious words. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. That's ownership right there. Have you ever seen somebody who's just kind of in a mess of their own making, and you just wish, you just wish that they would own it, right? You just wish that they would own it, and that they would say, hey, you know what? There are a lot of things at play here, but at bottom, this is my fault. And you wish that for them because you know it'd go so much better if they'd stop self-justifying. You wish that for them because you know it'd go so much better if they'd stop excusing their sin. You know it'd go so much better for them if they'd stop denying their sin. And that's why this is so refreshing to hear this from Israel. At the end of the day, they say, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. And she even keeps going. This this wasn't actually just a surface level generic confession like, yeah, I've done a lot of bad things. It's my fault. You ever had somebody do that, but it doesn't seem like they're really willing to get to the specifics? She gets to the specifics. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers, that's everybody, have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Verse 36 talks about their slavery. Verse 37 explains why their slavery. Last words says, because of our sins. Oh, this is real confession here. This is Israel finally agreeing with God. You have been good. You've been good all the time. But we, we have been wicked. Now they're in a position to do business with God. Amen. Now they're in a position to do business with God, to enter into covenant with God. Confession comes before covenant. And we'll get to that next week. So the good news is next week. The bad news is this week. So let's apply these things to ourselves. If you're a non-Christian here this morning and you want to be saved, this text helps you because it sheds light on the first step of repentance. To be right with God, you've got to repent of your sin and you've got to believe the gospel. But what does it mean to repent? It starts with this. This is the first step. What did Israel do? Well, she looked at her past. 
She looked at her past as in a mirror. And what did she see? What did she see about herself? That she was a sinner. And what did she see about God? That he's been good to her all the time. That's what she saw. And that's the beginning of repentance. To repent is to turn from your own sin, but to turn from your sin, you first have to see your sin and then own your sin. So you have to see your sin. So maybe, maybe this is you. Maybe this is you. Some of you don't see it. This is the problem for some of you. As you look at yourself in the mirror, you see a pretty good person. You, you see an honest person. You see a hardworking person. You see a responsible person. When you look at yourself, you, you don't fundamentally believe you need God's grace. If this is you, you should give yourself to the reading and hearing of God's word in as many contexts as you can. <laughs> Do you think it's a coincidence that this confession today comes after a lot of intake from God's word? No! As they increasingly read God's word, God's word has increasingly read their hearts and exposed them. If this is you, you should give yourself to the reading and hearing of God's word in as many contexts as you can. And if this is you, you should couple that with prayer. You should pray, oh God, as I read, as I come to church, as I talk with Christians, I know, please God, take the scales from off my eyes such that I really see you for who you are and I see myself for who I really am. Oh God. Let me see myself through the accurate mirror of your word, not the distorted mirror of my own estimation of myself. You must see your sin. That's number one. And number two, you have to own your sin. So maybe this is your problem. Maybe you see your sin, but maybe you don't want to own it. Israel time. Praise God. If you've been with us as we've watched this debacle of a people moving through the Old Testament, but she this morning gets it right. You have been righteous in all that's come upon us for you have acted faithfully and we wickedly. She owns it. Do you own it? Do you own it? Or do you minimize it? Or do you justify it? Or do you excuse it? Or do you redefine it? Or do you blame it on others? Whoever the nearest person is that you can establish some form of responsibility for. Friend, if you want Christ, you've got to stop all that. You've got to stop maneuvering to get yourself out from underneath the burden of your sin. You've got to stop it. you just got to own it. That's the best thing you can do for yourself because then, then you can bring the weight of that burden to Jesus Christ and you can say, take it. Oh, Jesus, take it. I come to you burdened and weighed down. Take my burden, Jesus. Take my burden. And he will. 
That's why he died and that's why he rose to take upon himself the burden and the punishment of your sin so you don't have to carry it anymore. But you got to own it first. And brothers and sisters, this isn't a place that we come to once and we move on. This is a place God intends for us to return to again and again and again. A place of honesty and ownership about our sin. I have seen believers and professing believers make a wreck of things because they don't own their sin. They minimize it. They minimize sexual sin. They minimize excessive alcohol. They minimize bitterness and unforgiveness. They justify it. Drinking a bottle of wine is the only way I can get through the night. They redefine it. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed and frustrated. I'm not enslaved. I'm just struggling. I'm not in sin. This is a disease. They blame it on others. Well, if my spouse would just, if my kids would just, if my work would just. Brothers and sisters, just be honest with yourself today. Just be honest. Is there business that you need to do with God? Is there sin that you're ignoring? Redefining? Excusing? Put an end to that. Put an end to that this morning. Stop hiding. Stop lying. Stop evading. Bring it to the light of Jesus Christ. You've already been exposed as a wicked sinner. There's no need to keep hiding it. Bring it to the light. Confess it. And the floodgates of God's mercy and grace through Jesus Christ will overwhelm you with refreshment and forgiveness and power for change. This is the only way to live as a Christian. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sins, we make Him a liar and His truth is not in us. 
Come to the cross of Jesus Christ afresh this morning and allow yourself to be exposed. You already have been exposed. Bring it to him, confess it, and be honest, and you may need to talk to others about it. And receive the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ for forgiveness and change. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is not like us. We thank you that you are so different from us. We thank you that you are so perfect, so morally perfect that we are exposed in your eyes for what we are. So far from morally perfect. But Lord, you are a kind and gracious and forgiving God who has given your son to take upon himself the punishment we deserve and to give us perfect standing with you, which we don't. Father, All we can do is thank you that this is who you are. And we ask you to help us be honest about who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.